Welcome to Neo-Futurism. <laughs> we want to thank everyone doing that. We want to thank Greg Allen for being here. And um, remember that there's lunch afterwards. So. <laughs> Something to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> Neo-Futurism. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Thank you. So yeah, uh, my name is Greg Allen. I'm the uh, founder, uh, founding director of the Neo-Futurists, which is a theater company here in Chicago, as well as in New York. Uh, we're celebrating our 20th year right now um, here in Chicago. We're a, a kind of small, middle-sized experimental theater company uh, based over a funeral home. Um, and uh, we've done over about over 50 productions uh, all over the country, as well as a little bit abroad in such strange places as Sibiu, Romania, which is the birthplace of Dracula um, in Transylvania. Um, as an example of my work, I'd just give you uh, uh, one of uh, many plays I've done. Oh, there goes the cell. Um, uh, I, I uh, do a piece for about 10 years now called The Complete Lost Works of Samuel Beckett, as found in an envelope partially burned in a dustbin labeled never to be performed, never, ever, ever, or I'll sue, I'll sue from the grave. Um, this is a, uh, a presumed performance of seven uh, Beckett plays, which we found in the aforementioned dustbin in a, in a burned uh, uh, envelope. And uh, uh, one of the plays is lost again during the performance. Uh, but the, the plays range from uh, Happy, Happy Bunny Visits Sad, Sad Owl, which is uh, Beckett's first play, presumably, uh, written at the age of seven and performed in its original puppet staging. Um, through his uh, final play called Not Me, uh, which is actually written posthumously. Um, it includes a, a play called If, in which uh, a woman uh, rocks back and forth, uh, if you're familiar with Rockabye, uh, a, a man dressed as a woman sits in a chair and, and rocks back and forth and, and uh, well, says more, and the lights come up. And then, uh, if a picture paints a thousand words by bread, <laughs> is played through. Uh, it's about a three minute, 20 second uh, song, while she kind of looks around and remembers things. And then the song slowly fades out, and the lights fade out, and just before they dim out, he says, more, again. And the lights come up, and the entire pl song plays again. Uh, and then he, the lights fade, and he says more again, and the song is played again. The song, uh, I think the maximum number of times we played was seven times through. Uh, the audience often uh, rebels, and uh, uh, it's the closest thing I've ever done to creating a riot in the theater, uh, which I, you know, you, you hear about all these famous performances of Stockhausen or, or even uh, uh, what's the right of spring, uh, Stravinsky, and, and people would riot, or the beginning of, uh, of Alfred Jarry's uh, Perubu, where he comes out and says, Merdra, and the pole place went up in arms. And it's hard to think of what would do that in the 21st century, and what I've found is annoyance and repetition <laughs> is what will do that. The only, uh, so this, this show uh, uh, was created by three of us, and who also performed it, Danny Thompson, Ben Schneider, and myself. We opened it in a small fringe festival here in Chicago uh, where it went well in the three or four performances. We brought it back there at this little theater. We then um, took it to the New York Fringe Festival by way of another festival in Vermont. 
Uh, it sold out every performance uh, through the Fringe Festival at an 11 p.m. Tuesday performance, which sold out, won the Best uh, Comedy Award there, was remounted in New York for a six-week run, was taken to Edinburgh, sold out every performance, was picked up to be performed in London, where I went back, and I had to absent myself, replace myself, went back and directed it at one of Samuel Beckett's famous haunts in London, and, uh, and then it was... Uh, we came back to New York, did it again. It was then translated in Germany and performed uh, all over Europe in, in German while we also uh, toured all over the UK. And this was a production where the first time we met was three days before we opened. So I'm a theater guy uh, here at a radio conference. And so the question may be, you know, what's this theater guy here uh, to do? Um, there are, uh, I, I uh, wanted to share some elements of, of audio and an interview that I've uh, put into some of my productions. Um, in, one, uh, in one case, uh, the Actors Theatre of Louisville, where I work as well, um, wrote, uh, commissioned uh, artists around the country to write phone plays. So we were given the, the commission to write a play which would be performed on a telephone. And so I, I created a piece uh, called uh, Subliminable, uh, shortly after George Bush said that, uh, subliminable uh, to just immortalize his famous utterance, um, uh, where uh, where people would come up and answer the phone and be told to then identify the person they were most attracted to in the room and tell them to come up and listen to subliminable after that uh, so that then the next person who would listen to it would realize the person before them had also uh, identified them as the most attractive, and so they could direct the next person, or they could move on and try to direct someone else, seeing if you could actually have hookups right there because of a, uh, because of a telephone play. A lot of my work tends to be audience interactive um, and, uh, and also kind of appropriating from various sources, an adaptation of Kafka's The Trial, uh, the, the last two minutes of the complete works of Henrik Ibsen, uh, if, if you know Ibsen plays, Hedda Gobbler, Peer Gint, uh, Wild Duck, uh, Doll's House, the, the famous ones, um, they always end with a bang. I mean, Hedda Gobbler famously kills herself, uh, the doctor says, but people don't do such things, and the curtain comes down. So uh, all of Ibsen's plays basically end with these outrageous climaxes, so I thought, well, let's cut to the chase and just do the last two minutes <laughs> of all uh, 26 plays by Henrik Ibsen. Um, so it's just climax after climax after climax. Uh, we perform them in uh, chronological order, and uh, it uh, was also a uh, it was quite fun, as well as uh, trying to figure out different variations as how to adapt each each play. We we perform one as a re as a, a script analysis. We perform one as a first reading. We perform one as a a rehearsal. Um, uh, there was one that was done as a story. There was one that where we. Uh, posted the last uh, four lines of Olaf Liljekrans. I'm sure you're all familiar with Olaf Liljekrans, um, one of Ibsen's uh, notorious plays, which was, I think, performed once in his own theater and never performed again, um, and then asked the audience to translate the Norwegian. Um, so uh, all sorts of things up to, until final uh, uh, big uh, productions of, of uh, Wild Duck and uh, and Doll's House and things like that. Um, 
one of the things I've used uh, quite heavily uh, in my productions as a way of exploring uh, the artist that, or the sources that I'm exploring uh, are, uh, are interviews, and I wanted to uh, share uh, a couple of those, so I, I need a volunteer. Come on up, first hand. Have a seat. I did a piece with uh, John Pearson here at the... Uh, that's all right. Here at the Neo-Futurarium in Chicago, uh, we did a piece based on the works of Marcel Duchamp exploring his methodology and his history. And one of the interesting things about uh, Marcel Duchamp was uh, uh, how he lost his virginity. And this was uh, how we, we dealt with that. In the middle of the show, uh, we would, I would go up to an audience member and ask them these questions. <laughs> what is your name? Mark. Hey, Mark. What is the large, I'm sorry, that's the wrong one. Here we go. How do I lose my virginity? Yeah, no, that, that's coming up. Yeah, in fact, no, the question is, uh, how old were you when you lost your virginity? I was 18. 18. Was it with someone you loved? Good question. <laughs> exactly. I, th I think at the time you could say yes. Yes, yes at the time, at 18, is uh, to the best of your ability of love. How sexually experienced were they? They were uh, more sexually experienced. More. So it was not their virginity? I don't think so. Okay. Um, how if it was, they didn't let on. To they them. didn't let on. Actually, my own personal virginity I lost when the other person did not know, which I think is sad. Um, <laughs> don't you, don't you want to, like, you know, you shouldn't lose your virginity without the other person knowing. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, how long had you know them before this? Four months. Four months. Okay. And uh, what were the exact circumstances? Where were you and what led up to the, the act itself? How far back in time do you want me to go? Well, just, just, just the, ni the night or day of. I mean, what, the, what the was day the circumstances of we were, uh, that led it, to this? It was uh, the summer between uh, graduating high school and going to college. We were at uh, her house, which was a third floor of a three-flat, while her mom, a social worker, was at work. And her little sisters and friends were in the other room, and we snuck into her mom's bedroom. Ah, mom's bedroom. Mom's bedroom. <laughs> All right. <laughs> was it planned? Um, well, on my part, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> what well, was her mom's bedroom? It was her mom's bedroom. Okay, but yeah, I suppose. Okay. Little things had led up to that over the weeks prior, and I think it was our first opportunity to consummate. All right. Um, did you ever have sex with them again? Yes. Uh, did you use birth control? Um, yeah. It yeah. was a long time ago. so I <laughs> What form of birth control at the time? Uh, probably condoms. Condoms. Um, did they know it was your virginity? You, you already... I would suspect yes, but I didn't say it. Because I had friends and she had friends, and I think my t friends probably told her friends, and something got around. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you regret it in any way? No. Um, do you know where she is now? I don't. Hmm. Uh, what do you imagine, where do you imagine they are right now, and what they're doing? They? Or her. <laughs> Sorry. I, 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 I try to keep them non-specific sexuality-wise, so, or gender. Gender uh, non-specific, oh, okay. so I'm right, sorry. Yeah, all of them. Well, I, I imagine she's uh, in this country, uh, 
not sure where, maybe the west or the east. Um, working? Good. <laughs> I mean, working in, in a, you know, not, uh, maybe working in, in a, uh, I don't want to say as a waitress, but working in more of a nine-to-five type job than in some kind of a creative pursuit or something like that. Mm -hmm. Just working. 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 Which nowadays is great. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what do you remember, what was the last contact you had with her? Uh, the last contact I had with her, not a very um, happy event, but the last contact I had with her was um, almost 20 years after that day. I was single and living in Rogers Park, and she was in town because her husband had committed suicide <coughs> and came to, it's no one I ever knew, uh, was visiting her mother in Chicago. And um, we just got together at the Heartland Cafe and had a cup of coffee. Did she contact you or you contact her? No, I think we were brought together by a mutual friend who told me she was in town and brought us together or something like that. Uh, what was the last thing you said to her? Um, probably something like, see ya, good luck, something like that. Hmm. Well, thanks very much. That's it? Okay. Yeah, that's it. All right, thank you. Thanks, Mark. So every night uh, during a, a Deschampian romp, even, as we called the piece, uh, I would go out when we came to Marcel Deschamps' virginity and, and interview an audience member thusly. Um, I, I really think uh, it's, it's uh, fascinating to 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 design uh, questions, uh, interviews, where it's always fascinating, no matter, I mean, whoever answers this, this is, you know, it, it's, it's not a celebrity interview, it doesn't have to be anybody, but um, no matter what, the, the answers are, are, uh, are quite fascinating. Thank you, Mark, I, I put you on the spot, but you, you came through like a trooper. Do I have to sign a release? <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to ask the sound guy, I don't know. Um, as another example, just one other show before I kick into the big time. Um, uh, a, <laughs> the big time, like I hit the big time. Um, a, a, I uh, created another show called a, uh, oh, also in a Child, I'm sorry, also in a Deschampi and Romp even, I uh, interviewed uh, third graders on uh, the playground about who, who they felt was more important, Marcel Deschamps or Pablo Picasso, and who, who had a greater impact on the history of art and 20th century art, and uh, and ask them about you know what is art and how they defined art and if if someone were to take a urinal and turn it on its side and sign it R Mutt as Deschamps had is is that really art uh, and uh, and what defines art and I got I, I wish I had the the audio to play for you but some really wonderful answers um, some some people really went very deep into the questions some of these kids uh, some deferred to their parents. Um, Another show I, uh, I created not too long ago uh, was also based on audio, um, which was called A Child's History of Bombing, where I had grown up my whole life knowing that my Uncle George had uh, worked on the Manhattan Project. And uh, he lives down uh, still in Knoxville, Tennessee. And um, I just remember being really fascinated by the fact that he came home from work every day, and his wife would say, how was work? And he'd say, fine. And that was all they could really say. Uh, he was one of the few physicists uh, who was actually 
in on, uh, on the entire endeavor of what they were actually creating down there. And he was a 21-year-old kid who was pulled out of graduate school, um, one of maybe 50 people to actually know what the work was. So Uncle George is now about 83, and I endeavored to go down to, uh, to um, Knoxville to interview him for uh, uh, like three or four days. And um, no one had ever really asked him these questions, not his kids, not any interviewer ever. And I really, you know, just asked him, knowing this is what you're doing, what, what were your ethical issues, basically, is kind of what I, I kept pointing out, any contradictions about, you know, he, he joined the Manhattan Project basically to, to end the war with Hitler because Hitler was evil and, and they had discovered that. But of course, they didn't drop the bomb on Hitler. And uh, certain moments in his life down there where the war, you know, there was VE Day at a certain point and somehow they changed their antipathy towards Japan and justified dropping the bomb on Japan. Um, I'd also discovered that he said there was a letter that went around through all the scientists at the time um, that was signed by them that said this should never be used on human beings. Einstein signed that letter also. That's that, what I read in, in a book called Yeah, Thousand Years of Life that Einstein signed that letter. Sorry. That's great. No, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, I mean, you know, and this, this is the kind of thing that happens too when you do, do you know, live theater in front of people that, that is autobiographical. The, I, I, I discovered what I found with the letter was that they circulated it, the army intercepted it, and never even went to Truman. That, that uh, it was basically squelched by the military. And, you know, I, I'd kill to get a copy of the letter. But, um, but anyway, so I interviewed uh, Uncle George, and then I wove this into a, a show called A Child's History of Bombing based on this uh, brilliant book called A History of Bombing. Um, uh, that basically tracks the, I, uh, the focus was on the American military atrocities. So we started with uh, World War I and, and aerial bombing and obviously moving into World War II and the firebombing of Tokyo and, and uh, all these different aspects. Um, and then kind of led up to uh, another interview section which I, I grabbed an audience member and brought them down on stage. Uh, <laughs> and uh, talk to them about this. So if I could have another volunteer, it will not be as, well, I, I can't even say that. <laughs> it won't be as personally exposing, I don't think. Could someone uh, volunteer? I've set myself up with this other one. All right, come on up. Here we go. So it's nice to be presenting, you know, all this information to be performing a show and in the midst interweave live audience interaction. <laughs> What's your name? I'm Suzanne. Suzanne. Suzanne, what is the largest creature you have ever killed? Um, probably um, a cockroach. Cockroach? Anything driving or no. fish? Oh, I've caught some fish, yeah. Yeah? yeah. Lobster? Never caught lobster, no. Well, not caught, but you never had to oh, boil. I, I, no, I've never actually boiled a lobster, no. Okay, so maybe a fish is the largest object? Mm -hmm. All right. What were the circumstances? Anything special? I was on a fishing, I wasn't on a fishing trip, I was on a canoe trip um, in uh, northern Minnesota and I was, friends had brought along some fishing poles and I decided to try my hand out in, in a canoe. 
And, and I was the only one who caught, caught something all right. that weekend. Yeah. How big was it? It was like this big. I uh, threw, threw it back. You threw it back. So did you kill it? You didn't it might have not survived. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you feel after catching, after, after you thought you might have killed the fish? It didn't feel so good. I, I, th I was excited to fish, and then I, actually when it was flopping around the canoe, it was scary, and I realized that it was actually maybe not in enjoying the experience. Uh, do you consider yourself a violent woman? No. Have you ever said, I want to kill you to someone? Maybe jokingly. Jokingly. Have you ever said, I want to kill him to someone? I want to kill him. Possibly. I don't remember. I've probably said it not with a serious tone. Yeah. Or kill her, kill him. Okay. Um, have you ever thought of actually killing someone? No. Not even thought of it? I mean, I guess, I guess I've thought of it. Yeah, I've thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who hasn't? Yeah, well, that's the question. <laughs> who wasn't? See, that I can't, I mean, I've thought about what it would be like maybe to kill somebody, but I haven't, like, fantasized about it or, you know, so, uh, pursued the thought very there's no one specifically that you've ever felt no. personally like, I want to kill him. No, 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 no. Or her. No. Okay. So here's the classic question. Huh. If you were in a room with Adolf Hitler <laughs> before he rose to power and you somehow magically knew exactly what he was going to do and how it Im would impact the world, would you kill him? Mm. No. Because I don't, I don't know if I could actually kill somebody. I would try to detain him. <laughs> like in Guantanamo or somewhere. <laughs> um, is there any way you would think of killing Hitler that would be okay? It would have to. I would have to have like really, just gotten into my head that yeah. You know, I mean, right now I can't think of killing anybody, but you know, I guess if I prepared myself and really just realized this is the only thing that was gonna only way that to avoid. Yeah, I guess I, I could kill him, but I don't think, it's. I don't know. Sorry, I'm not very. No, no, that's fine. I'm not clear on this. So if you knew you had to kill Hitler to save six million... Yes. Yes, I would. I changed my answer, I know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, that's all right. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the... Okay, if, uh, and how would you do that? Can you imagine? Something quick. And, so I wouldn't have to, you know... I mean, obviously, probably a lot of people would want to see Hitler suffer, but I, I just can't imagine killing somebody, so I'd want it to be over fast. Would you kill Hitler if you also had to die? Yes. Would, would you, in fact, prefer to die? I don't know. No, I don't think I'd prefer to die. Okay. Would you kill Hitler if everyone in this room had to die? No. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> No, I wouldn't kill Hitler if anyone else had to die but myself. Unless everyone agreed that they wanted to die for Hitler to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should take a vote right now. 
would you uh, kill Hitler if your mother had to die? Only if I only if she could agree to it. Somehow. Do you have any siblings? Yes. <laughs> I have two siblings. Gosh, I don't. I can't. It's hard. It's really hard to think about that. I mean, this is this is assuming that like we know that killing Hitler yes, would stop. Yes, it's a completely fantasy situation. So like, if we that knew you know that, exactly what's gonna happen, that, like it would avoid uh, the Holocaust. It would avoid everything. Like, well, and then nothing like that would happen. Um, I mean, pr I guess I would have to. I mean, if I knew that that was gonna, uh, you know, avert that, um, you know, horrific time period and the death of. Millions so of even if your family had to die? I guess so. I mean, <sighs> we're Jewish, so I mean, how, how can you say no? Did any, uh, do you have any relatives who died in World War II? No. Not at all? Maybe distant cousins, but no, we, were, we immigrated before, before that. Do you consider yourself a violent woman? No. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I forgot how badly that interview made me feel. Um, <laughs> uh, it was fascinating, though, certainly in the context of the show. Um, uh, some people who, uh, I didn't actually interview a survivor, but um, people whose relatives were and, um, or not, you know, um, veterans, uh, people who are hunters. I mean, I, it's, it's really fascinating to see most people say, like, the largest object, the first thing they've killed is a bug, um, which is also kind of surprising in this day and age, which is wonderful in this day and age, I think. I think in general we tend to be a very peaceful person, people in general. Um, well, those were just a couple examples of how I've used interview in live, live audio on, on stage, but primarily I'm here because I'm the creator of a show called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, an experiment in performing 30 plays in 60 minutes. Uh, we've been running this show here in Chicago for 20 years, opened uh, December 2nd, 1988. So this is our 20th anniversary, and uh, it opened during the last lame uh, days of the Reagan administration, to put it uh, in perspective. We outlasted Reagan. Um, and uh, basically in the show, we also, uh, of the 30 plays, two to 12 plays come in each and every week, brand new plays. Um, and uh, therefore, uh, we average about 325 new plays a year, and we've created almost 7,000 to date since 1988. So obviously, uh, this is uh, a situation where we have to create constantly a lot of material. It's uh, performed by an ensemble of five to eight people at any given time. Uh, we tour all over the country as well. Um, but uh, so we have not only been performing uh, Too Much Light uh, for 20 years, we've been rehearsing every week for 20 years as well um, because we're constantly uh, creating new, new material for the show. And every month or so, it's an entirely new show. Uh, just to give you an example of what the audience experiences of, of coming to the show are, we uh, 
you would come to our theater, say tonight, say tonight, why not? Uh, at 11, actually some people from yesterday came last night. Um, uh, 11 o'clock, there's a line of people outside the door of, uh, uh, of a funeral home, it looks like. Um, and we're actually upstairs and uh, people come in and then we tell you that you have to roll a die to uh, determine your admission. $7 plus whatever you roll on a dice to get in. So it's a random admission between $8 and $13, still dirt cheap, uh, less than a movie and popcorn, as we like to say. So everybody comes. Tends to be a very young audience for this, basically in their 20s. Um, you're then given a name tag. People ask you uh, what your name is, and they write down onto a hello, my name is tag whatever they hear, but they're wearing a Walkman uh, with earphones, so it's very hard for them to hear. So it's kind of an Ellis Island kind of experience where you get some horrible bastardization of, of what your actual name is. Um, you then are handed a menu, and your attention is directed to a clothesline over the stage. Uh, the menu has a list of 30 plays, the 30 plays we'll be performing for that weekend, all weekend, numbered 1 through 30. Over the stage is a clothesline with 30 pieces of paper, numbered 1 through 30. You're told that these correspond and that you should order by number. Uh, therefore, you are in charge of the show. You, uh, obviously, another random element is the show will then be performed 125, whatever, it'll be jumping all over the place. And there's an onstage darkroom timer to keep us honest. Um, hopefully, you we perform and pull down all 30 plays from the clothesline. All of them start with go and with curtain, which we just call out. Curtain, you're told, is your cue to call out the next number of the next play you'd like to see. And hopefully they're all performed before the buzzer goes off and you all have to go home. Last night, we didn't make it. Uh, we make it about half the time. Um, so obviously these are random things being barraged at you the whole time. Um, the show starts with the beginning of the countdown, start, uh, start of the clock, and then it's a fast and furious kind of charge through 60 minutes. If you could queue up number two. Uh, just to give you an idea of one of the plays in the show, what that experience might be, uh, here's a play called Title. Title? Go! Statement. 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 <clears throat> Question? Agreement. Reassured statement. Confident statement. Confident statement. Overconfident statement. Question? Elaborate defensive excuse. <laughs> Half-hearted agreement. Insecure statement. Distracted statement. Absurd statement. Clarification question? Panicked bullshit explanation. <laughs> Meaningless comic non sequitur. Fake laughter. Fake laughter. Accidental compliment of physical characteristics. Please respond. Shocked continuation of meaningless comic non sequitur. Relief laughter. Relief laughter. Self assured agreement is denial. Exaggerated statement, exaggerated statement, grossly exaggerated statement. Clarification question? Extremely exaggerated elucidation. Mental compliment with accidental double entendre. Oh, oh, oh confident laughter. <laughs> confident suggestive proposition. Fuck! 
silent denial. Aghast repetition as question. Disgusted, violent denial. <laughs> Defensive, incriminating implication. Offended retort. Aggressive, childish insult. <laughs> Disbelieving rhetorical question. Aggressive, childish insult. Stun silence. Aggressive, childish insult. Pathetic self-revelation. Uh, um, so that's just an example of, of what it sounds like to be at the show. Obviously, there's kind of a fair amount of chaos uh, going on that's recorded live at the theater. Um, Greg, yeah. Are people working from from script? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. The um, yeah. So all of these pieces are are written. Uh, some people uh, get confused with improv. In fact, a few years ago, New City, a paper here in Chicago, gave us the best improv company award. Uh, uh, the, uh, the media is always so well informed. Um, oh, it, but, but just to, so, to be clear, these are plays that have been written, but they learned the plays, so they're acting plays, or are they reading text? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, no, we all memorized. We we're memorized the plays. Um, some of them, obviously, are, uh, are audience interactive. Um, so you have to kind of approach it from a conceptual standpoint. The, since you're seeing 30 plays back to back to back, um, the, you know, the feel is very much of improvisation. It's an extremely live experience. Um, you'll see you know, monologues, uh, dialogues, a choral piece, um, movement to music. There, there'll be songs, puppetry. Some plays are funny, some are serious. Some start serious, turn funny. Some start funny, turn serious. Um, I try to kind of, I always think uh, if you can create a piece, once again, we're talking two-minute plays, right? Um, if you can create a piece that has the same emotional arc as a long fly ball in the bottom of the ninth inning in a baseball game where you know everyone goes outrageously excited with the hit and then it's caught at the wall and then you're plummeted into depression. If you can do that on stage or in an art piece uh, in, in that amount of time, in like what, two seconds? That, that's, I, I think, one of the goals of, of artistic, uh, or at least performance for me. Um, there are uh, political plays. I think we tend to be a very political company right now. We have uh, Sarah Palin is such wonderful you know, inspiration, um, as, as well as the election in general. Uh, a lot of, uh, since the two-minute form is so short and that we, we try to um, move through with all this diverse information, um, we can be as experimental as we want to. There are pieces that are definitely fairly opaque for the audience, but we can explore different forms um, of uh, you know, blackout plays and, and uh, just uh, much more kind of... Uh, non-linear structure, non-narrative non realism. Uh, social issues are certainly uh, explored. Uh, we use found text from time to time. I have a piece right now about uh, Edward Moybridge, um, how he, uh, he actually uh, murdered his wife's lover. Uh, a pretty fascinating fellow, if you know, the, you know the horse running, the famous 
series of, of a horse that, that's Edward Moybridge. Um, collage, uh, certainly all, a lot of this is uh, influenced and inspired by the Italian futurists, uh, 20th century art movement, really the first avant-garde movement of this, of this uh, century, or last century. Um, dance pieces, but the one thing that is very unified about these pieces is uh, that they're all, they're primarily pretty personal. Um, title obviously is not specifically personal, but an abstraction of a personal experience. Um, and the, the real unifying element of everything we do at the Neo Futurarium, which allows me to drag someone down on stage and interview them during a full-length show, is that uh, we are essentially doing nonfiction theater, which for you radio folks is kind of taken for granted that what you're doing is mainly nonfiction. But in a theater world uh, where most everybody expects to walk in and see characters presented by actors in another setting, uh, in costume, having some fake interaction between each other or pretended re interaction. Uh, something that really sets the neo-futurists apart is that we're constantly exploring our own lives on stage. Um, I perform on stage as Greg. Everything I say that comes out of my mouth is, is the truth. If I'm talking about my life, if I'm talking about my son Noah, it's because that's uh, what Noah said. That's what really happened. I don't say I've been to Seattle last week. If it was actually two weeks ago, I say I was in Seattle two weeks ago. If I've never been to Seattle, I can't say those lines. If uh, I happen to step out of the show for a couple weeks, no one can take my part because those personal truths do not hold true. So uh, literally everything we say on stage is an exploration of, of an absolute truth to the best of our ability. Um, everything we do on stage is an actual task where when you call out the numbers, we actually jump up and pull them down. If we're pushing, we really push. If we're, uh, you know, whatever we're doing is, is all very task oriented. Um, uh, yeah, I, I can't think of an example right now. And all of the plays are set uh, on a stage in front of an audience, which by God is actually what's going on. Um, so we don't pretend to be in an elevator, in a cafe, whatever. We try to eliminate all sense of pretense and artifice from the stage and try to explore what it means to be a human being in front of a lot of other human beings, expressing our lives, ex encouraging you to also respond to us, giving you essentially the control of the show and, uh, and really explore instead of looking out with your, your sense of imagination and kind of imagining what could happen between people somewhere. Instead, we look at what has actually happened to us, what our own hypocrisies and contradictions and, and uh, sense of self is. How does a human being behave in front of a crowd? What am I thinking right now as I'm addressing all of you? I'm on the spot. Um, you know, and then what's it like to pull up somebody and, and have them enter that as well? How do people behave in front of each other? How does a group behave? I did a piece called, uh, a large piece called uh, Jokes in Their Relation to the Unconscious because I was frustrated about coming into too much light and the audience tended to think it was a comic show. So they would laugh at all sorts of things that were like, what, what are you really laughing at? What, what's, what, what? So uh, uh, for jokes in their relation to the unconscious, which is a book by Freud, um, I, I set out at the very top of the show, I just explained to everyone that we are going to uh, explain why you laugh, what the theory of comedy is, so that you will never find anything funny ever again. <laughs> the, the aim of the show is to put the final nail in the coffin of comedy for all time. It never worked. Um, the show worked, but the, uh, you know, the aim was somewhat, uh, uh, 
tongue in cheek. Um, so once again, this, this aesthetic is our bottom line, to drop one name, uh, Stephen Colbert was actually a neo-futurist, the shortest lived neo-futurist for about an hour. Um, <laughs> Very odd, long story. But anyway, uh, I remember in, in rehearsal, he, he'd, his background was with Second City. I don't have any improv background, but Stephen was uh, trained in Second City. And, and when we got into this, and he was like really thrown by the fact that for Second City, of course, the bottom line is comedy. In fact, I was talking to the director, uh, a director at uh, Second City recently, who said, we have to have a laugh every eight seconds. It's literally that mechanical. A laugh every eight seconds is what you're shooting for. Um, Whereas uh, Stephen was kind of thrown by the fact that our bottom line is the truth. We're trying to explore the truth on stage. Doesn't matter if it's funny or serious or, or what have you. It's, it's about trying to find you know, who, who we are in this world. Um, and so therefore our, our goal is, I'm, my goal every night to perform is to be myself on stage. Which of course is impossible. Um, but you know, why do anything that's possible for the rest of your life? I mean, it seems like the, the only real point is to try to do something impossible. And, and because there's a certain amount of artifice of me sitting here in front of a microphone, of me addressing a bunch of people, of me having a, a slightly heightened sense of, of uh, being entertaining and, and talking to you all. Um, and uh, this is not, you know. Uh, the, but our aim is to try to create as, as honest, authentic interactions in the theater as, as humanly possible to explore the community and to explore uh, uh, what the inner lives of a, of a person are. Um, so, uh, and this is our aesthetic that we have over all, all of our 50 productions. One of the elements of, of outside life, we used to sometimes, we were in a storefront for a couple years and we got to actually take the audience out into the street. We did a piece called Leaving So Soon where we would just turn to someone in the audience and say, oh God, it's time for him to leave. Hey, let's everybody, let's go say, uh, say good, goodbye to him. And we'd, uh, we'd uh, get him up and we'd give him $10. We'd get the whole audience out into the street. We'd hail a cab, we'd throw the guy in the cab and say goodbye. And then we'd go back in and perform the show. <laughs> and <laughs> um, <laughs> unbeknownst to him, they'd often come back with like a smoothie from the 7-Eleven or something. Uh, a slushy, a slushy. That's what they have. Um, so, uh, so, and also, if we sell out too much light, we order a pizza on stage, and some pizza delivery guy comes and delivers the pizza in the middle of the show. Um, so, trying to pull as much of uh, the actual world into our theater as possible, and uh, telephone calls out to the world as well. Um, but all kind of exploring this in in lots of different forms. Are there any questions at this point in time? Yeah. You know you talk about being yourselves on stage, you also have a scripted show. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there is certainly a school of improv comedy that talks about being real on stage as well. Um, I just wanted Bill's to... Spilling. Yeah. I just wanted to sort of complicate that equation a little bit and hear your response. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, I mean, people say if we're trying to create an actual event where we're ourselves on stage, why aren't we doing improv? Because certainly a level of artifice is that we know our lines and that we know our blocking and we know we've preset the lighting and things like that. To me, in my mind, I think you can just cover a, a larger myriad of topics, of structures, of forms for performance, um, as, as well as you can go a little deeper in terms of what you're going to say on stage. I'm just not brilliant enough to come out with these 
you know, these thoughts that I would uh, have if I did, if, you know, if I sit down and I write a play, I can make it on one topic and, and I can structure that, that piece. So within that, yes, that's one of the, uh, the elements of too much light that l lends itself more to artifice than to, uh, uh, I mean, that's an element that we sacrificed of neo-futurism to artifice in order to get to a deeper sense of truth. So that's kind of our thinking. Yeah. Do you take turns to write the plays, or do you devise it together? We actually, um, since it's broken down into these 30 segments, um, the ensemble is completely writer-director-performers. Once again, of course, if you're going to be dealing with your own life, you've got to be the writer. You can't pick up a play by Arthur Miller and perform that. Um, so uh, we're all writers. We all uh, get an assignment by uh, and get together on Tuesday and pitch our, our plays that we've written. Um, and so, like... This week we rolled, uh, we have an audience member on Friday and Sunday night roll a die on stage. Once again, lots of random elements to keep things live. So the, an audience member on Friday and Sunday rolls a die on stage. The total of those two rolls is how many new plays we have to create for the next week. So this week we rolled a six and a four, so it's a 10. So a third of the show has to go and we have to recreate a third of the show. So then there are eight people in the show right now. So we probably each came in with two to three plays because you know we're not always they're not always great plays and you have to balance and everything, um, and so then we pitch them. We choose a play that is not our own uh, to go into the show. So you can't like always be like I'm the best. This is amazing. I'm brilliant. Um, and uh, and then that person who wrote the play is then responsible for directing it as well. We're a complete ensemble. Uh, even though I'm the founder and the art, uh, not the artistic, uh, the, the creator of Too Much Light, uh, I have actually no greater say than anyone else in my ensemble. We're a collective, uh, which has its own challenges for anyone who's worked in that way. I went to Oberlin and, and uh, so I was used to the co-op system. And so when I started this company, I thought, oh, that's, that's a cool structure. I, I don't know if that's such a cool structure, but uh, I mean, at least everyone really buys in. Everyone has equal power, equal uh, responsibility, theoretically, and uh, just meetings take a long time. Yeah. Yes, but uh, everyone's more invested because of that. Yeah. There are probably a collection of greatest hits, plays that work best, and uh, you know they expire after a month. It sounds like, and I wonder if there's any way that you preserve some of the best plays, do you do greatest hit shows? Um, at the end of every year, we celebrate our anniversary by doing our favorite shows of the year, um, as chosen by the authors. Um, but that's every year because then topicality, you know, hopefully there are no greatest hits that outlive other plays on stage that, um, uh, you know, as someone's always said, why don't you just put together a, a format of the greatest 30 plays and do it somewhere. But um, I, I'm, I'm not really interested in, in doing that because it's the new plays that always interest me. I'd like to give you guys a writing assignment uh, right now. If you take out a piece of paper and a pen. Obviously when we're, we're working with two minute pieces, uh, there's a lot of synthesis that has to go on. You have to really be able to get down to one idea. This was one of the reasons I created the show like this was because I was having great difficulty creating, writing the great American play. I wasn't Tracy Letts, who could, who could write a three and a half hour play exploring this family with wonderful characters and interactions and dialogue. Um, I had trouble conceiving of such a large image as that. 
but I could bite off the world in these little bite-sized chunks. If I needed to, if I, I wanted to explore the pen, I could certainly write a two-minute piece about the pen. It could be in the form of the pen. It could be expressing from one side and not the other. It, you know, there are all sorts of ways you can look at an object or uh, one subject, what you ate for breakfast this morning, and explore it in an artistic way. It's not, it's not what you do, it's how you do it, of course. Um, so as an exercise now, I'd just like to have you uh, think of synthesis in a, in a large way. Um, I'd like you to use three sentences, not run-on sentences, not long uh, Henry James sentences, no. Uh, three sentences to tell your life story. Obviously, your life story is vastly more interesting and more complicated than you can possibly put in three sentences. There was a woman yesterday who kind of write, wrote her bio with these long, long sentences. But obviously, you have to pick and choose exactly how you view yourself. I could give you this assignment every day for the, for the next, whatever, year, and you could probably answer it in a different way. But today, how do you think of your life story in three sentences, as specific or as abstract, however you want to... Uh, want to do that. So I'll give you five minutes to, to see if you can craft the perfect three sentences that will express your depiction of your life today. Some people have done this by just covering what happened today. Some people try to synopsize. Sometimes it's three photographs of things that have happened to them. Uh, found It's amazing. It, it goes all over the map. So uh, similar to the six-word memoir thing. The six-word what? It's like this project. I can't remember who did it. It's like six-word memoirs. They have people that write, like, they have to, like, sum up their life in six words. Wow. Yeah. Sounds similar. It's very interesting. You get three sentences. Go. How many people are done? Raise your hands. Oh, good. Okay. comes the performative part. So, would anyone care to share their life story in three sentences? All right, come on up. I'm going to give you, I often give this uh, assignment to, uh, of course, in theater classes, but uh, then you have three sentences, one object, and one distinct repeatable gesture. Uh, the objects and the repeatable gestures aren't going to work too well in the radio format, so I'm going to give you uh, two sounds. Oh. Yes. Okay. You can make them with your mouth. You can bang the microphone around, right? She can bang the microphone. Yeah, sure. Um, you can use whatever is here, so uh, take a moment to think about that. And uh, Two sounds. Okay. Two sounds. Just sounds, whether they... Whatever strikes you or not. Okay. Here. Read it and incorporate my sounds. However your sounds come in there, whatever you think uh, would embellish or contrast or fill out the story. Okay. So, say three sentences. Okay. The pigeon, can you guys hear me? Yeah. You can't hear me. The pigeon was born in a good enough nest. Now it forages for red berries. Slimy, slithery things and the right tree. Soon it will snap twigs, snap, in its beak and build a nest of its own.
great. Thanks. Let's get a couple others by contrast. Come on, people, be bold. Okay. I was born in Philadelphia to a loving, neurotic Jewish mother with roots in Eastern Europe. <laughs> and a carefree Spaniard father from the Mediterranean island of Mallorca. Me cago en la puta, coño. ¿Dónde estás? I was taught from an early age to look at the world as an immigrant, an outsider, a visitor, and that influenced my decision to become a journalist, a teller of others' tales. All my life, I've been searching for my home. Nice little sound bites in there. That's great. Let's get one more. Yeah. In a little town by a river, I got in a boat. Whoosh! Down and out with the tide, I saw the ocean. Whee! One day, I'll go back upriver. So a couple allegorical approaches um, in terms, I, I like the self as pigeon, I think is pretty great. Um, and then just kind of the the open metaphors. What uh, if you were to expand upon that into a piece? How would you, uh, how would you explore that in a sound piece? I grew up actually in a town on a river, so um, I've actually done a documentary called Down River: Life and Landscape in Essex, Massachusetts. So cool. it was basically telling that story through the voices of the people living there. But it would be a personal oh. story, I think, actually, if I look at it again. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, soundscape. I don't know. In what format? Like a long documentary, or just a well, just no. Think of think of a yeah. Think of a two-minute piece or, or something to. I guess the obvious one would be water sounds, but I'd want more accents. I think. I think sometimes uh, I think sometimes radio tends to be in theater, especially we we try never to show the same thing that we're speaking of. That, uh, you know, if you say, I picked up the chair, and then you pick up the chair, it's like, uh, yeah. Um, it's a little redundant and kind of like just unnecessary. So instead, if you say, you know, I, I helped my dad. Uh, no, no, no. I, uh, I, I visited my dad in the hospital. You know, that, that the, the image, the, the metaphorical leap between the image and the, the, the words kind of gets the audience's uh, mind's cooking and so I think in, in radio often there's this sense of wanting to have the actual sound of what it is one is speaking of whereas I think there's a lot more to be said for distance between those things with with metaphor and with uh, you know that let the audience make those those leaps and associations I think it's easier in a visual when you got one oral and one visual but I, I think it'd be interesting to to explore that in in uh, sound as well uh, your piece about your your family was wonderful just in terms of I, I think there's also a lot to be said for just like <laughs> instead of going and getting the actual thing just like that doing it like that you know <laughs> um, you know kind of foley artists who just like do it uh, not even necessarily as well as a foley artist would do it but there's there's something about expressing yourself that we know to you what those people sound like. Whereas if you go and record them, then it, it puts a personality and a specificity onto them. 
Um, so it, sometimes it's interesting to hear completely from one perspective, which is kind of what we do with our short plays. Is that it's it's I mean really it's your baby. We we write a two minute play, we get the, the okay from the rest of the ensemble, then we cast it, rehearse it, direct it, put on lights and whatever, and then we you know we put it on stage. So it's an amazingly fulfilling self expression without any middlemen at all. You know, in most playwrights, you got to write the play, you got to submit it to a theater, they give it to a director, they give it to actors who then give it to the audience. And here it's like just direct self-expression, which, which is really uh, a boon to kind of the stuff I do. Um, anyone else want to, uh, want to share their, their life story? That's a half hand. There, come on up. I was born and the sun came out. I was taught to discover for myself. I found true love in many ways. It's lovely. That would be a, you know, certainly a piece you'd, that you could embellish in lots of different ways. One of the challenges is of, uh, of you know, you've got this monster uh, uh, subject of your life and the, the diversity of your life. And, and I've heard people use just talk of food. I've heard people use quotes from people, uh, um, it, it, it can really go all over the place. But synthesis is one of the things that we definitely um, explore because we're dealing with two-minute plays. Um, and we call them plays. They're not skits or scenes or any of the S words, as we call them. Um, you know, if Samuel Beckett can write a two-minute play, then, then so can we. You know, if you can express a, a whole lot in, in a, a song or a poem that lasts about two minutes, why can't you express enough in a two-minute play? This is another example of a, a play from Too Much Light. Uh, it's actually just a recording of it, not live, but in the studio, of uh, an example of synthesis once again and, and see how much uh, can be expressed in just a few words. This is called Building. Building. Go. I. 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 You. I. You. I. You. I. Love. You. I. Love. You. I. Love. You. I. Love. You. Now. I. Love. You. Now. I love you now. I don't 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 love you. I don't love you. I don't love you. I don't love. I don't love. I don't love. I don't. I don't. I don't. I. 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 I love. I love. I love. I love now. Curtain. Um, so just something we uh, we explore how you know obviously to boil down much larger topics to 
uh, to two minutes. Um, so uh, there's also kind of uh, a sense with um, with too much light, uh, just kind of giving you a, a number of examples of, of kind of approaches as well. Um, another element of, of the neo-futurist, since we're dealing with this aesthetic where we're trying to deal with the the actuality of what's going on, we often look at the mechanics of what we do in our immediate surroundings. If, uh, if you know, if this is a, I've always wanted to do actually a, a neo-futurist radio show where we kind of attack radio the way we attack the stage and kind of expose the, the trappings of the stage. When we perform in too much light, we never like go backstage. We always are, we just sit in the audience or sit on the sides of the stage and then jump up to perform. Um, so there's no kind of artifice in terms of us playing characters or going away or anything. We're the ones who have you roll the dice at the beginning of the night. We make an announcement. We say, I'm going to be myself before, during, and after the show, and you can talk to me at any of those times. Um, and so there's also kind of just this, this meta-theatrical element of, uh, of, of looking at the, the actual uh, mechanics of, of writing a play. This was, uh, this was inspired by Gertrude Stein called Writing as It Is Being Written. Writing as it is being written. Go. I am writing. I am writing a play. A play. I am writing a, a play, play right, right now. I am writing a play, a play right, right now, and you are listening to it. I am writing a, a play, play right now, and you are listening to it sometime in the future. I am writing a, a play, play right now, and you are listening to it sometime in the future, at which time you will be completely unaware of the fact. I am writing a play right now, and you are listening to it sometime in the future, at which time you will be completely unaware of the fact that I am writing. I am writing a play. I am writing a play in, in my car. I am writing a play in, in my car on the way to rehearsal. I am writing a play in my car on the way to rehearsal, trying not to have an accident. I could. I could. Be. I could be. Writing a play. I could be writing a play on the beach. I could be writing a play on the beach. Or in the bath. I could be writing a play on the beach or in the bath. Or while getting a blowjob. I could be writing a play on the beach or in the bath or while getting a blowjob. But I'm not. I am writing a play in my car on the way to rehearsal, trying not to have an accident, and you are listening to it sometime in the future, at which time you will be completely unaware of the fact that I am writing a play. I am writing a play in my car on the way to rehearsal, trying not to have an accident, and you are listening to it sometime in the future, at which time you would have been completely unaware of the fact that I am writing a play. If I hadn't told you, I am finishing. I am finishing a play. I am finishing a play sometime in the future. I am finishing a play sometime in the future after I got out of the car and went to rehearsal and didn't have an accident. I'm not going to tell you in what condition I finished this play. It's, it's not, not as pertinent, pertinent as the fact that I have written. I have written a play. Curtain. So, <laughs> thanks. Um, but just exploring the, you know, the dynamic of what's the time shift between when you're actually writing and then when you're actually performing the play. Um, so, uh, uh, I think there's a lot to be said by uh, for looking at your in actual actions, your actual environment, your actual lives. Once again, we're trying to, uh, in my theater, we're trying to create uh, an authenticity to what we're doing, but often through metaphor. Yeah, is there a hand? You used the word synthesis a little while ago, and I was just wondering what, what you meant by that. 
Um, really uh, boiling things down to their essence. Um, it was one of the words that the Italian futurists used uh, to, to synthesize. To um, The Italian futurists were the first ones to really propose uh, uh, cutting away all the chaff of all the exposition, all the extraneous crap, and, you know, like performing the complete works of Shakespeare in an hour, which, you know, it took 90 years to get there. But... Um, but that kind of thing. I mean, so in, in other words, the synthesis of doing the, the last two minutes of all the works of Ibsen and, and just kind of really saying, okay, this is unnecessary, unnecessary. One of the, uh, one of the exercises I was going to do with you now, but I, I think I'm not going to have any time, is uh, I often do something called story reduction, where someone comes up and just tells a, a favorite story of theirs, you know, beginning, middle, end, a fully fledged... Uh, uh, fleshed out story and then someone else I invite to come up and absolutely retell that that story to the best of their ability which you know innately is they're going to leave out certain elements and then I have people come up and keep cutting down the story by a tenth or a half each time they come up until you slowly are boiling down that story and leaving off certain things and sometimes people go oh how could you have left that out or this or that and certain elements and it's amazing what sticks um, by the end, sometimes it's, it, it's really this weird aberration of the story. Also, of course, people in the room would come up with different interpretations. At the end, I usually ask everyone to come up and give their synopsis of the entire story in like a sentence and a gesture or maybe just a sound and a gesture. Um, and it just shows how many different elements, how many different interpretations there are in any one event, in any one story. Um, so... Uh, so yeah, in terms of synthesis, that's kind of what I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. They were big on simultaneity as well. The, uh, the, neo -fut uh, the Italian futurists were having things happen all at the same time. I was just gonna uh, share the other uh, aspect I often look at it for as inspiration for my own work is hypocrisy. Um, when am I doing something uh, that doesn't go along with what I believe in and where, where do your beliefs and actions uh, come into line uh, this kind of fleshes that out once again I, I try to find a I'm, I'm playing some choral stuff for you I realized today um, which isn't often my style it's just kind of what works well on the radio. At one point we put together a CD of, of 30 plays in exactly 60 minutes one of the advantages of recording the thing because um, often we're over under um, and uh, one, of the one of the things I noticed was I almost had no material for just a CD, so I was kind of proud at that, uh, that because all of my work had some innate performative stage element to it, which I think if you're doing theater, there should be that. I'm tired of going to plays and seeing that they could easily just be filmed and thrown on television. Um, so, uh, but these are some of my sound plays or kind of spoken word plays. Uh, writing is, is being written actually uh, is all done in the dark with, uh, with flashlights. Every time we speak, we would show our faces. So you kind of have this building sense of light and then always going back to darkness uh, in between. And, and it's, it makes for a nice uh, visual, but these are just some pieces that would work um, at just as sound pieces. This is a, a piece called Dialectical Materialism of a Schnook. Dialectical materialism of a schnook? Go. Phone rings. Friend asks, are you a fag? Answer, no. Why ask? Ad exec, TV, voiceover, I'm perfect, big money. Misheard, not, are you a fag? Are you sag? Screen Actors Guild, voiceover, tomorrow, big money. Busy. Tomorrow, big money. 
really busy. Tomorrow, big money, really very busy. Tomorrow, two grand. Change schedule. Be there. Hang up. Beer. Beer commercial. Coors. Coors Light. Protests. Boycotts. Contras. Funded Contras. They funded the Contras. Two grand. I'm there. Next day, teach class. Class on Marx. Karl Marx. Marx says, The alienation of the worker is expressed thus. The more he produces, the less he can consume. The more value he creates, the less value he has. Labor produces fabulous things for the rich, but misery for the poor. End class. End class early. End class struggle. Hail cab. Take cab. Five bucks. Big money. Michigan Avenue. Big building. Top floor. Nice office. Nice decor. Nice furniture. Nice chairs. Nice carpet. Nice lights. Nice little lights. Those little lights that hang down with the little counterbalance pendulum things where you can adjust them with just the tiniest little push of your, your index finger. See friend. Nice friend. Very cash. Nice lounge. Nice drinks. Free drinks. Free food, free candy, free candy bars, free butterfinger. Take one, pocket one. Here it is, free. In booth, three takes. I'm perfect, I'm great, sign contract. Two grand, 15 minutes, I'm done. Go to elevator, push button. Back to lounge, nice lounge. Take Snickers, take muffin, free food. Back to elevator, push button, get in, eat muffin, pocket Snickers, think. Nice place. Nice friend. Nice job. Want job. Want friend. Want to be friend. I want to be my friend. Big money. Out on street, eat muffin. Man approaches. Man asks, spare change? Look at him. Old man. Poor man. Bearded man. Karl Marx. Me, seen as ad exec, Michigan Avenue, top floor, big money. Quick decision. No, sorry. Walk away. Walk on. Marx says, just as philosophy finds its material weapons in the proletariat, so the proletariat finds its intellectual weapons in philosophy. Philosophy can only be realized in the abolition of the proletariat, and the proletariat can only be abolished by the realization of philosophy. Fifteen minutes. Two grand. For Coors Light. Crunchy on the outside, smooth on the inside. Curtain. Uh, <laughs> not uh, and the the authenticity of that is actually that commercial wound up uh, bringing in ten grand in fifteen minutes. I made more than my entire theater career to that point in fifteen minutes by selling out to Coors Light. Um, uh, but uh, so I, I think often there's a there's a sense of uh, of once again exploring that uh, I th- think something you guys all know that the truth I think is often much more fascinating and stranger than fiction. Um, so instead of actually kind of trying to fabricate things like playwrights usually do, we, we've latched on to really exploring the authenticity of, of, uh, of our lives. This was recorded actually the other night with my ensemble at midnight, so it's, it's not the best uh, recording. Uh, we're a little out of tune, but here you go. It's called Good Fences. Good fences. Go. I was walking when my neighbor stopped and asked if I could meet her to discuss a problem she was having. 
But I didn't feel like it because she is a little creepy and her kids are always messy and her yard is full of garbage and I have my own concerns which often haunt me and my time is short and I don't know if she is crazy but I thought that I could talk to her just for a minute see what she is going through and see if I could help her so I rang her bell and then she said hi it's so nice of you to stop by do you want to come in i'm sorry for the mess we were playing laundry games and i had all three kids all weekend i was just practicing some etudes because i have a gig in the Wisconsin money for the divorce lawyers to has totally flattened me out to financially and i simply have to make some money so i'm playing again and trying to take any gigs i can find even though that's hard on the kids but the reason i wanted to talk to you is because frank has joint custody ride, but he is so still bipolar and refuses to see a therapist or take lithium and he's trying to self-medicate but he's still rather dangerous in a way that he takes it out on the family but he wouldn't hurt your family i'm just trying to protect like the kids from his delusions like he says he loves somebody, them and needs them totally but then he turns around and he says you didn't smile at me and that makes me hurt my groin and i, I don't doubt he's in physical pain but he he said he had to crawl out of class on his hands and knees after his so lecture sensitive the other day. That he complains but about some the, pain the time in the refrigerator okay coming and then there's the good humor truck the bells are the good humor truck and then it's he like he bleeds on the inside and nothing shows on the outside the but it's so hard on the kids with this i love you and then i don't love you and then he just went off to china for a month and sent back letters about how his girlfriend's kid is so wonderful and better peter's than arm was yanked in that such a way that he so couldn't move it for six hours and there's a sexual stuff with the, the kids which hasn't seemed to go too far so, so far but then do i go know. to the court and pay a lawyer five grand to receive three grand in alimony he says i'm an idiot savant and have no and he doesn't want me to work I thought he could be a piano. court reporter if so I had the time. So he if I work, he'll just bring back the kids in the middle. And just leave them here alone with nobody home. And you have such this a nice, happy them. family. If I he was drops wondering. them off and I'm not here, I was I was wondering. wondering if I could tell the kids that they could ring, ring bell. your bell so they could just be able to use the phone. Use the phone to call the police. Do you, Do you think, think that, that would be okay? okay? Then I looked at her, and then I saw she was my neighbor, and I thought about my problems and the quiet lives we lead. Curtain. So, so that, just from going next door and having a conversation with a woman who now I drive her son to school every morning. Um, so yeah, having never met her before that time, really talk to him. Um, I'll leave you with eight tips. Make form fit function. Find the right structure of the right, for the right content and start with each. I often write by starting with a form and thinking like the, the dialectical materialism of a schnook is a list play. Um, there, are, there are various forms uh, in terms of uh, monologue, puppetry, whatever. I mean, it, I think often choral work is, is uh, overlooked in terms of using multiple voices. Um, and then also, and so therefore, if, uh, sometimes if I get the structure, I try to figure out, okay, what's the perfect content for that form? And then I flip side too. If like, if this is the, the content, say I have this conversation with my neighbor, how what is best to, to communicate that to an audience? And and I, I thought something about, I mean, it was like this fast, and I mean, she was just having all this stuff fly out of her that was so outrageous and yet so incredibly poignant um, that I kind of 
that was how I appropriated that into that form of overlapping voices. Uh, number two, it's how you do it, not what you do. Once again, think of uh, form and structure and, and uh, what you, uh, how you know that. <laughs> Three, uh, personal truth equals universal truth. Uh, this is something we've found in, in neo-futurist work is the more we actually get incredibly specific and the more we really delve into our own lives, the more uh, people will come up afterwards and say they identify it, um, it, it, it explains uh, much larger, I mean, even though it's not their experience, even though it's very specific to the actual person sitting in front of them, more people uh, seem to identify with that metaphorically and make it more universal. Um, use ritual and repetition. Um, something I've, I've really found in my work is to often, you, you create, uh, it's almost a, a form of an inside joke. If you establish something early on and keep coming back to it, uh, people will feel like they're on the inside of the piece. Um, so through repetition, also you can get so much text, so much substance, so much um, uh, meaning through variations on the theme. Um, often what is, what is left out can read volumes without even having to put it in there. So I'm big on repetition and, and ritual. Uh, that's interesting. I just eliminated one of my numbers here. Uh, <laughs> uh, repetition I'll say that, yeah. Uh, number, <laughs> number five, repetition and ritual. Um, inside jokes. Uh, number six, uh, boil things down to their essence and do it again and again and again. I, once again, I could give you the life story uh, assignment you know, every day this week, and I'm sure you could keep pursuing that and finding all sorts of different truths within that. Um, so uh, I noticed in the pitch session yesterday that people were told to like, okay, you got to focus on one thing, you got to really narrow it down. And specificity uh, really means is, is where the art is, basically. Art is in the details. Um, number seven is uh, expose the hidden. Often what's right in front of you uh, is, is, is fascinating, because, but it's so mundane people overlook it. Um, so often if you acknowledge the things that you've, you've forgotten about, the trappings of what you're actually doing, the, radio, the nature of radio itself. Um, one of my uh, starts in theater actually was directing All That Fall by Samuel Beckett, which is his actually full-length piece, like his only one, his fourth full-length piece, uh, was written for the radio and uh, really explores the reality of radio um, by actually concluding with these two characters, one looks down into the other's hand and says, what's that? And the other kind of goes, I don't know. My God. And, uh, and that's all, I mean, you never know what's in the hand. It's just, you know, it, it's, the whole piece kind of explores on what is seen and what is listened to, as Beckett is, of course, the genius he is. Um, and, and basically, uh, uh, number eight, something you already know, is, is write what you know. And what you know is yourself. And, and uh, so start there and trust that your life is fascinating. Trust that there are elements that make you unique in the world and how you perceive it and how you express yourself. I teach classes in neo-futurism all over the country. And uh, 
I, I work with uh, everything from like 16-year-olds to 80-year-olds in the same class sometimes. And, and it's amazing how 16-year-olds experience their lives uh, can be just as fascinating as someone with a, you know, 80 years of experience. And uh, everybody has something to say and everybody has something to communicate artistically. And it's just a matter of, of bringing that out. So I really enjoy working with uh, you know, artists and non-artists alike and, and seeing because no one really has a leg up in this kind of, of, of theater, of this kind of art, because you're dealing with who you are, and that's always a, an open-ended unknown. So there's always more to be done. Um, I think that is all from me. You can, uh, if you have questions, uh, feel free to come up and talk to me, and I'm going to go have lunch. Uh, so uh, anyway, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.